Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we report on confusing and early news of activity across the front lines, analyse recent political developments in Europe, and discuss the difference between the war on the front and what we might see on social media. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday. The 5th of June, one year and 101 days since a full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our Associate Editor for Defence, Dom Nichols, Senior Foreign Correspondent Roland Oliphant, and Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley. I started by asking Dom to see if we can make some sense of the varying news reports coming in from across the front lines. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So, yes, there has been reportedly an uptick of activity, as you say, across the front line, mainly centred on on Donetsk, although uh, uh, other activity um, reports up and down artillery as well. It is far too early to say with any great assuredness what is happening. I was asked by the the foreign ed this morning, when will I be able to do an analysis on what's going on? And I said, next week, which you didn't look too impressed with. But I said, look, we we just don't know. I mean, there's so many reports coming out. We're not going to do the echo chamber of running around Telegram channels just reporting what, what Russian mill bloggers are doing. So, it, so we're not entirely sure. There are reports that attacks have taken place with infantry fighting vehicles, possibly including tanks. There is some footage on social media that shows vehicles, mainly motorised units, as in wheeled units, up to maybe battalion strength. I'm just... I'm. I'm guessing. So reports from Russia of six battalions destroyed, 250 killed. Just you know, just ignore all that. We're going to confuse ourselves. So what is this? It, it, if anything, to me, it looks like somebody is conducting a reconnaissance in force. I think this fits into the pattern that we've seen over the last few months, actually, of the of the shaping operations. Remember, we said shaping operations are those military activities you conduct in order to put yourself in the best possible place for when you do launch your main event, if you like. So there's a lot of violence in shaping operations. There's a lot of activity, but it is spread by geography. It is spread by different weapon systems. It's spread by different different targets and different objectives. So all the things we've seen recently, all the 
all the, the sort of rail lines going up and the fuel depots going up and, and drone strikes here. We also, this was shaping operations. And I think today, unless and until I'm proved otherwise and see something to suggest otherwise, I think this is what we're, what we're seeing. This just looks much more conventionally military to us because I think it is. It's, it's soldiers running around and, and armoured vehicles and artillery is reported as well. So it's very easy to then go, ah, this is uh, this is it. This is the big attack. This is the um, you know, this is what we've been waiting for. Now, there there are there are attacks taking place, but whether or not it is the counteroffensive, whether or not this is a, a diversion for something happening elsewhere, we just don't know. So treat everything with a with a you know a Bakhmut salt mine of doubt until until told otherwise. I mean, there are reports. Roland's going to talk in a moment about. Alexander Kordakovsky and why he may have some credibility, but he's reported just in the last half hour that leopard tanks have been seen. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I've not seen anything myself. I'd be surprised to be perfectly honest. But hey, you know, let's not get involved in the in the echo chamber. Let's try and stick to what we what we do know that's happened over the last couple of days since uh, since we all last spoke on on Friday. So there there has been continued activity in the Belgorod region of Russia. So this is the um, the oblast, the region bordering Ukraine, sort of north of Kharkiv, that kind of area. Belgorod, about 50 k's north of Kharkiv, and the border activity is 20 kilometers southeast of there, around the the uh, a village called Shebikino. Now there are reports from the the self-styled Russian Volunteer Corps. They've posted media footage saying they are they are there in that in that village. That is unverified. There are also reports of a new organisation called the Polish Volunteer Corps that said that they were taking part in the activity in the attacks last week. We uh, Russian lo- local governors, local authorities have been saying that thousands of people have fled Shebekino. This is a city of about 40,000, but said thousands have fled since Thursday, with many living now in sports halls in Belgorod City, further to the north, or moved out to neighbouring cities and regions. Elsewhere, let's go back to the Donbass around Bakhmut, a suburb or a village, if you like, to, to the north of Bakhmut called Bekhivka. That has been reportedly retaken by Ukraine. And this is coming from, just to add to the day of confusion, this is coming from Yevgeny Prigozhin, head of the Wagner Group. Uh, he said it's a disgrace because you may remember Wagner have now largely pulled out of Bakhmut. They've been replaced by regular Russian forces. There's a huge animosity between these groups. So, you know, old Yevgeny is never shy to look for an opportunity to bash the Russian military establishment as he sees it. However, that this does sort of chime with some of the other reporting we've seen today to suggest that there's been some kind of push to the north of Bakhmut and attacks, artillery, maybe even probing attacks to the south. But uh, yeah, so Yevgeny Prigozhin is saying that the, that the village of Bakhiva to the north of Bakhmut has been taken. Oleksandr Sersky, who's the commander of Ukraine's ground forces, all he said was that Ukrainian forces have continued, quote, moving forward near Bakhmut. Now, sticking with Wagner for a moment, they, as I said, they've, they are not, not great bedfellows with the Russian MOD. They have actually, they've reportedly taken prisoner the commander of Russia's 72nd Brigade. So that Wagner were pulling out of Bakhmut. They said they came under fire from Russian forces and they, they, they assaulted the position that was, that was firing at them. And they took this guy prisoner. He's on social media now, having been been interrogated so absolute chaos at the moment in the front lines and particularly in russian forces 
Just a note from over the weekend, missile and drone strikes from Russia have continued across Ukraine. Today's British Defence Intelligence report says that in May, over the course of May, Russia fired over 300 Iranian Shahid 131 and 136 drones. They further said that Ukraine managed to neutralise at least 90% using older and cheaper air defence weapons and with electronic warfare jamming. So the thinking here is that Russia is firing all this stuff to try and get Ukraine to use up its stocks of very expensive, uh, very sophisticated Western-supplied air defence missiles. And if these things are being brought down by such things as the Gepard, the German-supplied fairly old system, but very good, twin 35mm barrel cannons on the side of of a tank hull, chucking huge amounts of lead in the air to bring these down, then that's good. And it doesn't deplete those bigger systems. So that has continued over the weekend. There were deaths and injuries across Ukraine, amongst uh, mainly amongst the civilian population, which is the pattern we've seen now for well, 15 months or so. There was a strike reported to have been a British-supplied Storm Shadow cruise missile strike on the port area of occupied Berdyansk. So we're now down on the Sea of Azov, about 65 miles uh, behind the front line. So it looks like Looks like Storm Shadow was used there. Quite what it hit in the port area, we don't know. Bearing in mind, you know, these kind of cruise missiles, you're talking choose which square metre you want to hit type thing, unless it gets deflected by air defences, which doesn't seem to be the case here. You know, it's going to go where you want it. So what did it hit in that port? We don't know. It doesn't seem to be a ship, but it might be something vital like you know, the crane that loads the ship or the rail line that, support, that that takes the heavy equipment onto the ship. So rather than go for the ships themselves, it may be something much more critical as part of that port, but we don't, we don't know. And then just finally, just to, as part we think of the shaping for the anticipated counteroffensive, Ukraine put out the, a, new, a new video called the Hush Video. Lots of different military personnel all sort of turning to the camera, finger to their lips saying, hush, it's all about calm down, maintain operational security, i.e. don't go reporting every single movement you see because it's of use to Russia. It's quite a good little quite a good little film. Again, very very highly produced. These things look look and sound good. You'll find it you'll find it online. Uh, and they it finishes with the words plans love silence. Uh, but the the really interesting thing about this is that it was a, a it looks to have been hacked into I'm mangling the sentences here, but basically it went on the TV screens in Crimea, occupied Crimea, suddenly, suddenly all all enjoying this this hush video from Ukraine. So in terms of a in terms of information warfare and the psychological angle to this, I mean, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, But you'll find that you'll find that on social media. And and it does look that does seem to be credible, those reports that it was it was actually beamed into uh, TV screens in in Crimea. I'll take a little pause there. Thank you very much for that, Dom. Uh, Roland Oliphant, can I come to you? Dom has admirably summed up what seems to be a bit of a chaotic last 24 hours across the front lines. What do you make of it? I think Dom's caution is admirable. I, I, I think he's right. We don't yet know if this is the real thing. I mean, I would add that I think when the real thing happens, this may be well it may well look like this for the first few hours. You know, it could be that this is the real thing and that, you know, come tomorrow we'll wake up and realise that is that's what we were watching. But there's no way of knowing that at the moment. Um, and it may well be, as Dom says, more shaping operations. 
I wanted to uh, to do. <laughs> Thomas reminded me. The, the the person who's really putting out the most interesting stuff about this is Alexander Khodorkovsky, who is a senior uh, Russian stroke separatist official from Donetsk, and I think I think his comments are interesting partly because of who he is. And partly because, as so often in this war, you've got a kind of senior official who probably knows a fair amount of what's going on, who's pretty openly contradicting the official Russian Ministry of Defense account. So to give you the background on Alexander Khodorkovsky, he was a former commander of Alpha. That was the SBU's special forces in the Donetsk region. So Alpha, I mean, there's not a direct equivalent, but you could basically say Ukrainian SAS, counterterrorism, all that kind of thing. In 2014, during the first Russian invasion of Ukraine, he very quickly defected. He set up his own battalion called the Vostok Battalion. He became one of the most influential, most powerful kind of independent warlords that made up the the so-called Donetsk People's Republic. And interestingly, he's one of the very few of those commanders who has survived to this day. Many other people were replaced, assassinated, got rid of. He's a much more canny political operator. He's still around. Today, he is the deputy head of the Russian National Guard in Donetsk, in the so-called Donetsk People's Republic, um, which, of course, Russia said they annexed in September. And that means, since we know the, the DNR has contributed a large number of troops to the Russian war effort, he probably knows what he's talking about. So just to, just to read off a couple of his recent messages on Telegram, the most recent one, which caught my eye, as Don was saying just, just half an hour ago, um, so the situation on the... Uh, Novodonetsk and left of Veliko-Novosilka areas. Those are those two villages in, in kind of the western, southwestern part of Donetsk region. It's very difficult. The enemy pressing on our weak points is increasing his efforts. For the first time in our tactical area, we have seen leopards. Now, if he's right about that, that would suggest to me that those, those, those nice shiny new brigades we thought were being prepared for the offensive have at least in part been committed and might suggest that this is the beginning of the grand offensive. As Don points out, we're, we're very short of confirmation on that. It's only him saying this. This message has already been picked up by the other Russian war bloggers and repeated. It's being picked up by the Ukrainian war bloggers and repeated everywhere. The only source is Alexander Khodorkovsky. But he is, he is, I think, you know, he always had this reputation as, you know, relatively sober amongst the kind of the so-called separatists, the kind of the front organization that ran the DNR for the Russians. He had this reputation for a degree of intelligence and credibility. And in fact, if you go back to 2014, he did. He was one of the first people to admit, though he was forced to retract it, that the separatists had shot down MH17. He did that to a, a Reuters reporter and was then quickly told to shut up. I just also wanted to read something else he said and see what see what Dom makes of this. So it was yesterday, I think, he started talking about this um, this Ukrainian offensive down around Velikonovisilka. And he, he added this. See what you think of this, Dom. Neither the action in the north, Nova uh, Tavoljanka, that's up in Belgorod, nor the action in the south, so down in this area, is itself the promised counteroffensive. But in the event of a breakthrough, more significant forces could be transferred to the site and he adds in his comments about the, the leopard tanks as i expected yesterday smelling the scent of success the enemy will throw additional forces into the battle so what he seems to be saying is he thinks the ukrainians are pushing on different doors and reinforcing success does that sound like a credible a credible strategy 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's credible. That's what you do. It's the it's the giant military Jenga game. You try and look for the weak points. You you probe here and push there and raid and, and what have you. Looking for those areas, trying to find the, the lines between military units, trying to find work on those areas where it's very tricky knitting different formations and units together. So, I mean, that's that's what we've seen. That's just sensible military tactics. So I don't think he's any he's any real Klaus fits here saying, oh, they're they're going to be reinforcing success. Of course, you don't reinforce failure. That's the one thing you don't do unless it, unless unless it's the final the final battle and it's everyone uh, everyone defending the city. You don't reinforce failure, which is what Russia kept doing around Bakhmut mainly and other other areas. You you should only use your reserves, and you should always at every level you should always have a reserve force. Um, you use them when to exploit a success or to to, to plug a gap, and uh, and yeah, like I said, that's just sensible military planning. I don't think that's what's happening here. It's far too early to say because I doubt. Let's say if this is if this is the main attack, they won't have won't have decided yet which which area is proving the most fruitful. So I don't think we should read too much into that. No. Thank you very much, Dom and Roland. Anything more from you, Roland or Dom, uh, before we go to Francis? I just, I just wanted to highlight that how Khodorkovsky's comments kind of differ from the Russian Ministry of Defence's statement this morning, which was that they had completely stopped a Ukrainian offensive on five points and wiped out, I don't know, what was it, 250 men? I'm not sure. Kind of, They were claiming very significant numbers of completely destroyed Ukrainian equipment and, and, and men and so on, total defeat of the enemy. It's just worth noting. And again, you know, we do want to be careful about the telegram echo chamber. Um, Khodorkovsky, and he's not alone amongst the kind of Russian military blogging community, do seem to be much more worried than that. They do seem to be saying, look, actually, the situation is is much more difficult. He's been a bit more clever than um, than what. Well, <laughs> A bit less outspoken than Mr. Prigozhin. He hasn't accused Sergei Shoigu of shame or anything like that. But there's definitely, once again, one of those interesting divisions um, in the narrative being pushed out by the kind of Telegram blogging community and the Russian Ministry of Defence. What it actually means on the ground. And, and the, other, the other thing that I cleave to, actually, is that well, you re- one of the things you realise when you're reporting on the ground in Ukraine is that reality on the ground is much more mundane than things on the internet. So I'll just I'll just leave that there. We'll come back to that. I think that's a very interesting observation, Roland. But can I go now to Francis Sternley? Francis, you've been looking at some of the political and diplomatic developments over the past 48 hours. Well, thanks, David. One thought on all of this, as Dom and Roland have laid out, there is a whirlwind of speculation this morning as to whether what we're seeing is the counteroffensive or probing operations before the counteroffensive. But... One could argue that's merely a question of semantics in a way, because probing operations are an integral part of any offensive in order to gauge the strength of enemy positions. So I think we need to ask ourselves, what are our visual expectations for a counteroffensive? And then question that definition as to whether it's an accurate means of measuring whether the operations we're seeing form part of that. Now, as regular listeners will be aware, my view is that the majority of observers are expecting counteroffensives of the scale and the speed that we saw last year. And if that is our expectation, it may be misleading, leading us to mischaracterise the events that we're seeing now. And it also comes as a risk for Ukraine politically, 
namely that if the Western definition of what success looks like is of images of tanks rolling across fields and taking back dozens of miles a day, as we saw last year, and that is not what occurs, then some will argue that Ukraine has overpromised and underdelivered, which will make some Western backers nervous. And I think Ukraine is aware of this. On the one hand, they know the importance of expectation of something big. Zelensky over the weekend told the Wall Street Journal that Ukraine is ready to launch its counteroffensive the first time that he has done that. Yet then one sees videos and statements put out by Ukraine's military and government officials stressing that there will be no announcement of any offensive. And it may not be obvious when one is taking place. Then there's the interesting clip that Dom just spoke about, posted on the Ukraine's military on Twitter, urging operational silence. And the clip featuring that line, plans love silence, there will be no announcement of the start. Authorities in recent days have also cracked down on citizens sharing images or footage of air defence systems shooting down Russian missiles. So we're truly in a thick fog of war here and we need to think carefully about what we see before jumping to any conclusions. It's important to consider Russia's statement about thwarting any counteroffensives in that context. They won't know what they're looking at and it will be engaging with trying to shape the narrative of what we see in a way that favours them and also obviously Ukraine will also be putting out information operations that they think will favour how they shape operations in the coming weeks and months. So as the others have said, I just think it's very much important for us not to get carried away until we know much more than we know as of this morning. But in terms of political developments, I'll look at Europe first and then perhaps we can turn to Russia later on. There have been some interesting speculations coming out of the meeting last week in Moldova at what may or may not have been agreed between Zelensky and Moldova's president, uh, Maya Sandu, given that Russian peacekeepers currently occupy part of Moldova. There are some who are arguing that a joint operation between Moldova and Ukraine to liberate the territory may be on the horizon. And if so, that would, of course, be yet another example of Russia's aggression backfiring in terms of strengthening alliances between countries rather than driving a wedge between them. Moldova believes that Russia tried to launch a coup to oust the government and destabilise Ukraine's southwestern flank. So this is a really interesting subject and I'm sure that there'll be more on it and we will report that as we get it. We also saw over the weekend an extraordinary outburst by German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. And it was a Scholz that we've very rarely seen publicly. So he was delivering a speech at a Berlin festival when he began to be heckled by around 100 pro-Russian protesters that said Germany was inflaming the conflict and warmongering. And they called Scholz a liar and a bandit and demanded an immediate end to military aid for Ukraine. And very uncharacteristically for Schultz, he really hit back, seemingly taken aback by these remarks. So he said, warmonger? First of all, the warmonger is Putin. He invaded Ukraine with 200,000 soldiers. He is risking the lives of his own citizens for an imperialistic dream. Putin wants to destroy and conquer Ukraine. And then he went on. And he killed countless citizens, children and elderly in Ukraine. That is murder, to say it very clearly. This is something we, as friends of freedom, as Democrats, as Europeans, won't allow to happen. 
While you scream peace without weapons, Putin pulled together a massive amount of tanks, cruise missiles and rockets aimed at Ukraine. That is irresponsible. That is warmongering. That is violence with weapons. It was quite a thing to watch. Schultz has been cautious in almost all of his public statements on the Russia-Ukraine conflict, perhaps because he knows his policy of arming Ukraine is not universally popular in Germany. So I recommend listeners seek it out because it is very revealing as to perhaps the reality of his true feelings on Ukraine in a way that we haven't seen articulated from him really since the war began, I would argue. But it isn't all plain sailing for Ukraine diplomatically today. Belgium is seeking explanations from Kyiv over reports that Belgian-made weapons were used by anti-Kremlin fighters in Russia. So the Belgian PM said in a radio interview that they're asking the Ukrainians to clarify the situation for us. The rule is strict it is clear our weapons are supplied to ukraine for defensive purposes to defend ukrainian territory and this is obviously following those reports in the washington post that we spoke about last week that western arms were being used in the belgorod region in russia and that was following u.s intelligence reports about u.s vehicles and polish vehicles as well being used in the attack so clearly there is some concern in belgium for right or wrong, these Belgorod attacks have triggered some unease, I think it's fair to say, in Western circles about what could happen with these weapons if they're not necessarily in direct control by Kiev. And no doubt there are major conversations taking place behind closed doors on that. But lastly, one quick update. We heard from China's special envoy last week and we've now heard from the Vatican regarding its own peace mission to try and help end the war. So we understand an Italian cardinal has headed to Kiev for a two-day trip to sound out government authorities. The Vatican announced the trip in a short statement. It said that the main purpose is to listen carefully to Ukrainian authorities on the possible ways to reach a just peace and support humanitarian gestures that may help ease tensions. Now it's not clear if this cardinal is going to be meeting lots of senior officials whether he's going to be meeting Zelensky or what even his itinerary is I don't think we can expect much to come from this but it is interesting that these peace initiatives are still ongoing despite the fact that nothing fundamental has changed for many weeks now when it does I think we can expect such initiatives to increase at pace and not just from the Vatican and China but from all sorts of powers around the world who clearly will as the ground begins to shift in one direction or another in Ukraine will suddenly feel that this is the moment to back their side into the negotiation space but I think we're still some way off that David. Thank you very much for all of that, Francis. Roland and Dom, any thoughts uh, or additions to what Francis has been reporting there? And if not, Roland, can I ask you, you you mentioned earlier, you finished your segment saying sometimes life on the front line from your experience as a a war reporter is a lot more mundane than what you might see on the Telegram groups where I think lots of people get quite a lot of their information from. Could you talk to us about that? What, What is the difference? Social media, media in general, actually, this isn't new. I don't really think this is new at all, right? We've always had to shift papers even before social media needed a headline. You had to make people pick up the um, the newspaper, all of that. Look, it, it's driven by instant gratification and fact. I mean, Dom, Dom was... Dom just admitted to mutiny, basically, um, earlier on this show, where, where you know, he's a foreigner that says, when can you give me an analysis on this? Oh, yeah. And he says, well, in two weeks or something, which is true, perfectly true. 
but the machine doesn't want that and people don't want that and so people put it out there, there's pressure on journalists to 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 kind of be first and 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 tell it in a sexy way that brings in the readers but there's also people want to repeat stuff and it's exciting and so on and and very very soon the the, the echo chamber gets going in in all kinds of ways and I can I can think of many examples I mean I mean one of the recent one was when I was I was last kind of down around Bakhmut and it was the the day when we realized that they were they were doing this little counter of this which turned out to be a smaller counter for offensive than it was on the flanks of Bakhmut I was there at the time. I mean, it was. It didn't feel like a dramatic moment at the time, you know. I mean, it was. It was loud. We could tell something was going on. It was obviously there was there were more shells being fired than usual. We had some kind of sniff from people that the Ukrainians were were pushing things, but that doesn't mean that the air changes colour and I don't know. There's sparkles and rainbows in the air or something like it's. It's life goes on. Life is 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 for the most part. It's a cliche, right? But 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 for the most part, war is is extremely boring and repetitive and exhausting. And and these these interesting things that are happening that we want to report on that the, the editors want us to be able to to definitively say yes or no, this is happening. They're actually all happening in in very small areas. Don, what's the effective range of an AK forty seven? Well, effective ranges as far as it as it will hit you, but you know, six hundred meters is what we work on, on in the in the British Army. That's what a uh, that's what an individual should be able to hit, and I think a squad should be effective at eight hundred meters. But of course, the round's going to go a lot further than that. Right. Okay. And what's the what's the area of Ukraine? The land area of Ukraine. Uh, slightly bigger than Basildon. Right. Okay. You know, you, you get you, you get the point I'm making. All right. You can hear firefights from a long way away. You're very rarely actually going to be where this stuff is happening. Lots of stuff gets repeated all the time. You'll see, right now, you will see, if you, if you log into Telegram, you look at the pro-Russian accounts, the pro-Ukrainian accounts, everybody is now saying, Alexander Khodorkovsky says that there are leopard tanks in the field. Now, I think that's reportable with caveats because of who he is. But it doesn't mean it's true. It doesn't mean they're in combat. He didn't even say they're definitely in combat. He said they've been spotted. Maybe they're some way back. And And, and, and the truth is that for, for most people up and down the line and, and behind the lines, the day is going to be, you know, much as it always is, it's going to be sleepless and there's going to be getting some food and there's going to be a rumble of something going on somewhere over there. And for a lot of the people actually involved in this, they too won't know what's happening until after it's happened. Now, that doesn't mean dramatic things don't happen. When they do start happening, they happen very, very fast and, and we quickly get, get, get overtaken by things. And the, and the last point, of course, just to get as a when you're a correspondent in the field, this kind of feedback loop begins working against you because you'll start getting calls from people in London saying, "Listen, I've seen this thing. Is this true? Can that be true? This all looks very, very exciting." And you're kind of standing there going, "Well, the birds are singing, the coffee shop's open. Is there going to be a new, you know?" Some I don't know a, a counteroffensive, a nuclear strike, a, a, a something or other. That does that does that make sense? That I'm, and I'm kind of like grasping at, at small little words to basically say that actually, even in war, your life is boring and it's never going to be exciting. Um, and turning to the internet, including you know coverage of a war to to kind of inject some kind of excitement into the fundamental futility of existence is simply telling yourself a lie. I think that's what I'm getting at. 
Well, thank you very much, Roland. I think that was extremely useful and fruitful and very interesting, I think, for those of us you know, who don't go to the places you've been to understand a little bit about what the reality is like on the ground. And of course, you, you didn't mention, obviously, Roland, that when you, when you are out there, you usually get a message from me at about at about 10 a.m. saying, hello, would you, would you like to talk about something on the podcast, please? So that's, that's an, another, another stressful piece of your morning you have to deal with. Francis, can I come to you? There's been a few developments reported by James Kilner, who's on the Moscow desk over the weekend, that you've been reading through. There's been some developments, basically, in Russia. Can you talk us through them? Thanks, David. I spoke earlier about the pro-Russian protesters in Berlin, and I want to turn later to a very interesting article in Medusa, which dives deeper into the mentality of those who support the war, particularly in Russia. But I'll do that as my final thought. On Russia, there have been some interesting developments over the weekend, mostly domestically and on the energy front. We learned yesterday, for instance, that negotiations between major oil producers led by Saudi Arabia and Russia are underway to consider cutting output further in a bid to prop up prices. So this is OPEC, again, the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, headed, of course, by Saudi Arabia. And they are consulting with 10 other major oil powers, including Russia, to review the grouping's future output policy. I know this all sounds rather dry, but it really matters. So what's happened in essence is this meeting was taking place in person in Vienna. It was all expected to go as it was and the output wouldn't drop. And yet we started to hear rumours last night, and this is coming from a source who's spoken to AFP, that actually there was going to be a shift away from the current policy and that they were going to cut output of down by 1 million barrels per day. We don't necessarily have this 100% confirmed yet, but it does seem increasingly likely at the time of recording. As I say, this is important because indirectly, and I, I don't think this is an, a, a political decision to favour Russia, I think rather it's it's a, an economic decision by Saudi Arabia in particular, this, but this will bolster the Russian economy that Saudis felt another cut was necessary underlines the uncertain economic outlook for demand for fuel in the months ahead. There are concerns about economic weaknesses in the US and Europe, whilst China's rebound from COVID restrictions have been less robust, I think it's fair to say, than many had hoped or expected. This in tandem with the fact that Russia is avoiding sanctions through shadow fleets, which we've talked about in the past, and the fact that India's import of Russian oil is now more than the combined amount bought from Saudi Arabia, Iraq, the UAE and the US, which is about, I think, 15% more than the previous high in April. That all means that the Russian economy is staying afloat despite the cost of this war. And there are still deep questions about whether that can last indefinitely. But the fact remains that on the sanctions front, the West has failed to persuade Russia's allies to cut ties in the meaningful way many anticipated. So we will, of course, be following this closely. It's good to be able to return to the energy front because I don't want listeners to think that because we haven't spoken about it as much for a while that it matters any less. Of course, the energy front remains absolutely vital in the long term as Europe tries to wean itself off Russian energy dependency. But anyway, in other Russia-related news, we learnt that supporters of jailed Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny, who we well known to listeners, of course, 
these individuals were gathering to call for his release and how were arrested by Russian authorities over the weekend. So Mr. Navalny spent his 47th birthday behind bars. That's a nine year sentence he's serving for fraud and contempt of court charges that he says were fabricated to punish him for his work to expose official corruption demonstrators met in st petersburg and several other russian cities picketing wishing him ostensibly a happy birthday but clearly designed to protest the current regime there's a woman holding a small black balloon with the words happy birthday she was also dressed in a hoodie that said you aren't alone written on it and she was detained and you see footage of her being asked or asking the police should i say as to why she's being detained and they refuse to give her an answer we know that the police increased their presence in moscow ahead of the demonstration and moved quite quickly to round up those who staged these individual pickets on pushkin square in central moscow and elsewhere in the capital It just goes to show that there are those in Russia who are willing to speak out against Putin. But it's important to stress that those who perhaps oppose Putin don't necessarily oppose the war in Ukraine. And that's an important nuance, which, as I say, I'll come to in the final thought. The last story in this segment is a fascinating one in the context of the drone attacks on the wealthy suburbs of Moscow that we spoke about at length last week. And we learn that the Kremlin plans to build a bunker underneath a VIP hospital in Moscow to protect the Russian elite from future drone and missile attacks. So this is supposedly going to be an 800 person bunker with filtered air cooling systems and various other fancy trinkets. It's going to cost the equivalent of 35 million rubles, which comes to around 350,000 pounds. It's going to be capable, as I say, of cleaning the air of any uh, gaseous weapons. That's their term of mass destruction and a to perform medical procedures that's according to reports coming out of the city now the kremlin has been quick to announce this very quick to announce this uh, given the scale of the project some muscovites have criticized officials for not protecting ordinary people but immediately prioritizing the elite and that's just it really i mean it comes as i've said many times uh, as an absolute priority for the regime to shore up the support of the elites in Moscow. They know that it is the key for the regime maintaining power. Some are asking, could it backfire when you so obviously are doing things that don't help ordinary people but help the elite? And frankly, I feel it's unlikely if one looks at Russian history, resistance from below is usually led by figures from above even Lenin was of noble lineage something he tried to cover up but there you go there are also no obvious liberal candidates in Moscow because they've either been murdered or imprisoned by the regime so that's where we are in the Russian domestic space but I'll have a few more reflections on this theme in a moment thank you very much Francis let's go to our final thoughts then Dom Nichols would you like to go first yeah, sure. Thanks. I would just caution people, as I said earlier on, just just no, let's just take us take this slowly. Go and have a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, drink water, whatever. Go and look at the clouds, go and do something nice, go and speak to a neighbour. Just don't doom scroll through Twitter trying to gorge on uh, on information from any any sources. You know, you run the real risk of information overload, which is going to lead to emotional overload. So, so just give yourselves a break. We will make sense of this in time. So just, just take it easy, 
go and do something nice for the rest of the day. Dip in and dip out, but but don't don't spend the rest of the day just endlessly scrolling through uh, social media, please. Thank you, Dom. Uh, Roland Oliphant. On what Francis was just saying about opponents to Putin and, and, and them being eliminated and no obvious candidates in Moscow, I don't want to get into this now, but I do think the situation with Yevgeny Prigozhin has, has crossed a threshold. I'm not sure what that threshold is, but I, it's, it is to me fascinating the the depth and openness of his of his attacks on on establishment EMOD. I'm not saying I know what that means. I'm not saying that there's going to be a coup in Moscow by Prigozhin or something. But I mean that 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 is uh, that that particular aspect of of how this war is blowing back on Russia and and what happens when you get a Praetorian Guard that's feeling a bit self confident. I think is definitely worth keeping an eye on in terms of the counteroffensive, I strongly endorse what Dom just said get off your screens they're bad for you at the best of times including now on the other hand I mean so did have it from some western officials relatively recently that in in their kind of vague way of, of of couching this the message was we're talking about weeks rather than months for the offensive and also that you know the Ukrainian forces are if they're not in place or, or they're, they're going to be in place fairly soon that again doesn't narrow it down much right it could be this week next week or, or so on but we're, we're definitely in the zone where it's reasonable to start seeing things happen like this and think oh hello is that it and, and a last just a last point look my, my last comments about about things being mundane on a trip drown might have made me sound a bit jaded look it's a privilege of this job it's amazing you do get to witness history happening and i love it to bits but but in the same vein um, in the same spirit as what Dom just said, think back to the the Russian re- retreat from Kherson. For about four, five, six hours overnight, if you had believed what you were reading on social media, on the Telegram channels, on Twitter, you would have believed that Russia had suffered one of its worst, worst, most bloody defeats in history. There were the, the people repeating absolutely uncritically as fact reports that you know the entire russian army had basically been pulverized trying to cross the river that the dnieper was awash with blood none of it was true but people convinced themselves they did and similar when the bakhmut kind of localized counteroffensive in bakhmut began last month the same thing happened to the pro-russian crowd on telegram for about three or four hours you would think that the war was over there were ukrainian spearheads halfway to moscow everything had collapsed etc etc again that was that crazy panic that urge to kind of get the dopamine hit by saying something and repeating something dramatic when reality just often isn't that dramatic reality will deliver its drama you just might not know it instantaneously you probably won't know it until retrospective the cliche about this job is it's the first draft of history and why is a draft a draft and not published because very often it's wrong so just bear that in mind well thank you very much Roland and Dom for that. Francis Sternley, would you like the very final words? Well, thanks, David. I just want to echo what Roland was saying there. I mean, one of the most striking things is when when one reads historical accounts, particularly diaries of great events in history, you go to the archive, you think, wow, I'm going to read the most fascinating account of somebody who was on the day recording an entry for, say, D-Day, which is tomorrow. And we'll come to that, I'm sure, tomorrow. And yet what usually happens, they say something like interesting news coming out of Europe. An invasion is happening. Now, what am I having for dinner today? Went to the shops and saw my friend. And it's that point 
point that the mundane rules actually and often you just don't know that you're living through history until we learn much more about it in retrospect so I completely echo Roland's perspective on this. But in terms of my final thought, I mentioned earlier this really interesting piece in Medusa, or Medusa as, as it would technically be, which is the Russian and English language independent news website. And they've published a fascinating article called The Only Thing Worse Than War Is Losing One. And it's about how even some of their readers, and they are a sort of liberal news source who were forced to leave Russia because they were independently reporting, even some of their readers support the war in Ukraine from a Russian perspective and they ask their readers to explain to them why and their testimonies are absolutely fascinating and incredibly revealing on this fundamental question about what ordinary Russians think about this war and some of the nuances I think are, are, are in particularly interesting. For example, Andre, a 35-year-old in Volgograd, a war ends when one side wins. Russia's defeat will mean national humiliation which we cannot allow. Therefore, we must win. We no longer have a choice. Ukraine isn't looking for peace. They're just asking Asking for more weapons and shelling Russian cities. Too much blood has been spilled for us to just say, thanks everyone, time to go our separate ways. Alexei, 24 years old. I don't support the war, but I also don't want Russia to lose. If that happens, it will be worse for everybody. And there's no doubt the world we're used to will collapse and an even greater darkness will come. The war was a mistake, but losing it is unacceptable. Pavel, 30 years old, from Germany. I'm angry at both sides of the conflict. I'm angry at Russia because it started a stupid, bloodthirsty war that leads to senseless killing every day. I'm angry at the countries that support Ukraine because they are not insisting on an immediate succession of hostilities or an end to the senseless killing. Instead, they're supplying the country with weapons, understanding all the while that it's only increasing the number of victims. Sergei, 38 years old. I don't support the war, but unfortunately the very existence of my home, Russia, is at stake. I don't want to see the collapse, the destruction of my country. Another anonymous person. The only thing worse than a war is a lost war. Starting it was an insane mistake, but now we have to win it. Otherwise, we'll be in the position of being at the mercy of the conqueror. I don't support Putin. Damn him. Dmitry, Moscow, 35. At first, I consistently opposed the war, but over time I got tired of what was happening, of the constant fear for myself and my friends, of the fact that I could be called up to the front if I opposed the war, and of the foreign media writing that Russians need to do something about the current regime and the war. I also realised that if Russia doesn't find a way to get out of this situation without losing face or losing on the global stage, life in Russia will get drastically worse. There are a number of examples in world history that indicate this, such as Germany. And it, and I go on. I mean, they're just it's, it's really I think the most striking thing about this is that you've got people who are opposed to Putin, but still believe that Russia needs to win for some of the reasons that are articulated here. Just a couple more, if I may, David. Sergei, 27 years old. I support the actions of my president and my country. Yes, I didn't initially understand the purpose of the operation. But after some time, I saw what I felt were Russophobic statements from both the European Union and the US. Anyone with critical thinking skills and a modicum of intelligence understands Russia cannot be a terrorist state. We're just protecting our interests and our sovereignty. So I, like the majority of Russian citizens, fully support the operation. And if it becomes necessary for me to fight in it, so be it. And then the last one, which tallies to that previous one, is he says... 
Uh, it's at Mudrad in Moscow. If we don't have the Black Sea fleet in Crimea, we'll lose influence over the Black Sea and the Caucasus. All Ukrainian governments explicitly state that they'll get Crimea and our eastern territories back by force or by diplomacy. That's a direct threat to us. And I think that's the other really striking thing that comes out of these testimonies is this idea that if Russia doesn't get what it feels is its right, that it will lose face and that this will have huge consequences internally. And it's just fascinating in terms of some of the nuances, as I say, that are in these testimonies, as well as some of the sort of surprising things that they're willing to say, despite being from a more, as I say, liberal perspective. So a concerning read, David, but I think an important one. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are Louisa Wells and David Knowles. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.